Welcome to the Feeling Bookish Podcast. Rob Fay here in Oregon with Roman Sivkin in Southern California and Heston Hoffman, as always, in East Portland doing the recording duties today. Uh, and today we have a special guest. His name is Douglas Robinson. He is a Finnish translator, and we're going to be talking about a translation project that he did called Gulliver's Voyage to Phantomimia based on an unfinished manuscript by the Finnish master Volter Kilpi. The book is available now by Zeta Books, and you can find it at zetabooks.com. So, Douglas, uh, welcome. And uh, perhaps we'll just start with uh, a very simple question. Um, you know, we have a pretty well-read audience, but they, they may not be that familiar with Volter Kilpi. Can you kind of just give us uh, some background about his place uh, within Finnish literature? Sure, and thanks for uh, for inviting me. This is, this is a great opportunity to promote a, a great Finnish writer that nobody knows because mm, he's yes. so difficult to translate. Um, and and you know, one of the I, my ideas is by by translating him, making him available, making him interesting in English, I can promote a larger understanding in the world. Um, because he really does deserve a place in world literature. Um, but there are a lot of people out there saying that he's untranslatable. I think that's not mm. true, but um, but he is difficult. Uh, so can he was born in 1870. Can you give us a sense of his, please, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So he was born in 1874, and he claimed that he was Alexis Kivi reborn, mm. I think sort of jokingly. Because Kivi, uh, who was fit the, the creator of Finland's literary language, really, uh, the, the, the first great writer in Finland, um, died uh, New Year's Eve 1872. And at the exact same time he was dying, Kilpi's parents, as he said, were dancing their wedding dances. In other words, <laughs> sex. Right. <laughs> I love and, it. Uh, you know, he was he was a it was sort of a euphemistic kind of guy in 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 ordinary life. Um, uh, actually, he was born. Uh, I, I think I counted seven hundred and seventy five days after that night. So it's not exactly you know. He counted the days. <laughs> I did, yeah, just to, just to test the. Uh, so yeah, um, he he claimed that he was uh, Alexis Kivi reborn, and when he was ten, he was already beginning. His parents were reading Alexis Kivi's great novel, The Brothers Seven, uh, starting when he was four, in eighteen seventy eight, just uh, six years after K uh, Kivi's death, and um, uh, he was at the, at the age of ten, he was beginning to plan a novel uh, that eventually became in the Alastal uh, parlor. Um, and his own sense is that there have only been, by, by, by his time, there had only been two great writers in Finland, Kivi and himself. Ooh. And, um, and he, that's a, a very arrogant thing for any writer to think. Um, I, I sort of important if you're shooting for the stars. Um, but I think probably a lot of Finnish critics would agree with him. Um, he is he is one of the two greats in the history of Finnish literature, and and so and you've mentioned uh, Kivi several times, and and yeah. so are we to think of him as kind of the Cervantes of Finnish literature? The, the sort of the, yeah yeah Kivi and and he he um, 
really drew a lot on Cervantes and and Dante and um, the Bible, of course, yeah. and um, uh, his his influence on Finnish literature was was has been just overwhelming. But also he, the influences he brought to Finnish literature were mostly foreign. He was reading Shakespeare and Cervantes and Dante in mm. in Swedish translation and then writing in Finnish. So his great novel, 1870, uh, The Brothers Seven, um, exploded like a, like a bomb in, on Finnish literature and was viciously attacked by Finland's mm. most powerful man. Well, the, the bastard son of Finland's, Finland's most powerful man, the equivalent of the prime minister, um, but this guy was Finland's only professor of Finnish literature. Just <laughs> attacked him. And From what? A, well, because um, he had a, a sort of Hegelian, Runebergian uh, conception of, of the propriety of idealized romantic literature. Mm. And Kivi was... Uh, was a renegade. He was he was um, a radical uh, innovator, and so everything he did was broke the rules. So, so is like, Finland in general kind of a, a more of a conservative society? Because Kilpi you mentioned is was conservative himself. Um, yeah. in, in general, can you give us kind of an idea what what what's up with Finland? I mean, we don't really hear about Finland that yeah. much. And I tell you, I have a little bit of a kind of a personal. Uh, interest in this because I was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, uh, on the yeah. Gulf of Finland, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, and so I, I smell the same air and I've, I've seen yeah. the same you know, similar sights and I, I somehow I, I feel close yet very obviously foreign to Finland. Uh, yeah. So give us a, a sense of uh, Finnish history and where literature sort of, because all we hear about is nothing. Yeah, but St. Petersburg does have the exact same weather as Helsinki. Yeah. Mm. Well, there you go. That's why I feel kind of like some sort of exactly. a weird kinship, you know? Yeah. yeah, and I have a very good friend in St. Petersburg who um, who also has connections to Finland, and it, it's it, it is very close. Yeah. And Edmund um, Wilson to the Finland station, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, talking about Lenin's return to to, right, to, right. to Russia. Yeah. And and yeah. I believe Finland was a Russian duchy at one point, something like Grand that. Grand duchy. Yeah. Grand yeah, duchy. Yeah. So Finland was for 600 years. Finland was a part of the uh, of Sweden, the eastern peninsula of Sweden, uh, and but you know the Russians and the Swedish were constantly battling over it for something like the last 200 years until the Napoleonic Wars, when Russia conquered Finland from Sweden and made it a Grand Duchy in 1809. Mm. And um, for the most part, for the most of the 19th century, Russia. Uh, encouraged Finnish nationalism because they thought it would pull Finland more away from the Swedes. Mm. Um, but by the end of the century, na Finnish nationalism was becoming dangerous from a Russian point of view. And so the so-called Russification period began. And um, the the measures were fairly extreme and generated lots of resistance in the Finns. And that eventually led to um, the the revolution or the civil war, as it's often called, uh, and Finland Finland was the result of that was independence because the whites won. It was the whites versus the Reds, and the whites, with a lot of German support, won. 
and Finland was going to create a monarchy, but then uh, the monarchy failed in Germany and um, uh, Finland became a democracy on the same model as as the Germans. But as a result of that that First World War, um, that that whole situation then, the civil war in Finland, um, Finland was was politically divided for a very long time. Uh, the white re retaliation against the Reds was vicious. A lot of them were uh, jailed forever. A lot, a lot of them were killed. It was it was a very very bad time. Uh, Kilpi was on the side of the whites. He wanted a monarchy. Hmm. Um, and um, well, there, left, that's the conservatism right there. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and and leftists in in Finland. Uh, still feel very uneasy about him, about you know the the greatness of his work. Mm. There are many people, uh, many critics who who want to assimilate his great work of the 30s to his conservative, uh, nationalistic, and some would say crypto-fascist uh, political tracks of 1917 and 1918, right around independence. Uh, you know, to to dismiss the great modernist innovations politically. Mm. Yeah, um, it makes me think a little bit of uh, uh, Celine in France with his uh, yeah. fascist uh, tracks as well. He's Celine was is, a, is an obvious parallel. Yeah. Um, the the difference is that fifteen years passed, and uh, in in Kilpi's late writings, there is absolutely no indication yeah. that he still has those crypto fascist right wing leanings. He is mm -hmm. a a socially conservative person, but the the novel, the Alastalo novel, is is not exactly socially conservative. There there are lots of indications that he is in at least uh, submerged rebellion against that whole conservative regime. Um, the 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 modernist style. We can get into that in a minute. Of the novel is is rebellious against conservative literary values, but also um, there's a kind of Me Too thread running through the novel. The the men in the parlor are not these pure uh, idealized characters. One in particular who is generally taken to be Kilpi's mouthpiece is um, a sexual harasser wow. and is exposed as that in the novel. But the but it's, it's funny because um, Kilpi's supporters, among the critics, don't see this. Yeah, it's, it's harmless. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of the creepy uncle. You know. So you know, um, and, and you started to allude to that. Um, can you give us a sense of how uh, how aware is he of you know the larger of his uh, colleagues, so to speak, throughout Europe at that time? Um, is does he does he read English or French? Does he is he reading Proust and Musil and Joyce and? How, and what how about Newt, he... Newt Hampson? Hampson was also yeah. uh, you know yeah. from that kind of neck of the woods, also a Nazi sympathizer or at least neo-fascist. Right, right. Uh, he he translated uh, five books from German and one from English. He translated um, Ralph Waldo Emerson's uh, Representative Men oh, nice. to Finnish. Um, yeah, so he he was quite worldly. He only traveled once outside of Finland. That was to Estonia, right across the Gulf. Mm -hmm. um, he, um, but he he read widely. He was an extremely 
well-read and intelligent and thoughtful and articulate reader of modernist texts. Uh, people claim that he did not have enough English to read Joyce, um, possibly Dubliners, but certainly not Ulysses. And I don't even have enough English to read uh, Finnegan's Wake. He's drawing on there or whatever it is. Um, so uh, he's he's often compared to Finnegan, to, to, to Joyce and Proust. Um, I don't believe he had any French um, but um, but I think that that his great novel Alastalo is closer in style, the sort of uh, um, stylized autobiographical nature of the the book um, is is closer to Proust. Well, because he's writing about his ancestors, right? His ancestors, right. Uh, his both grandfathers and his father is exactly. are in starring roles. Yes, that's um, right. Yeah, and they the, are stars. The house itself still stands, right? The Alastalo yeah. house, yeah. the paternal exactly. grandfather's house. Yeah, that's right. Amazing. And and uh, the the events in the novel are set six years before his birth. Uh, sorry, eight years before his birth. So it's sort of a prenatal autobiography, <laughs> like Christian Shandy in a way. Right, right. Um, yeah. So so uh, his his position in Finnish literature uh, was non-existent until about thirty years ago. He was completely forgotten. His great work of the 30s um, was sort of tolerated, but not really understood uh, and mostly ignored. Uh, and then he fell into um, to obscurity for a half century until the late 80s. And then uh, in 1992, he was, to everyone's surprise, he was his his novel, Alastalo's, uh, the Alastalo novel, was voted uh, the greatest work in Finnish literature. Now, how did that happen? I mean, because Finnish readers, you, you, you point out at some, in one of your interviews that the Finnish re readers note that reading that, that work, Alistello, is like reading a foreign language. Yeah. <laughs> so, a very so for a lot of Finns, it's like also kind of, um, seems like inaccessible. So how, yeah. how did this happen? Yeah, it, it is very, very strange. Nobody expected it. Everybody was surprised. Um, the, um, the situation uh, in Finland has always been that there is one great work of Finnish literature, and that is Alexis Kivius, The Brothers Seven. That's it. Everything else pales by comparison. No one will ever write a better book than mm -hmm. that. Right? This, uh, the, the, that that book will always be the greatest work in Finnish literature. And then 1992, Kilipi's uh, great novel takes everyone by surprise. And... Since then, maybe because of that vote, uh, more and more people have been reading it, and they have this this T-shirt. You read the book, and you get the you get to wear the T-shirt. You know, it's like sort of an appalling, uh, you know, like uh, I I ate a hundred jalapenos at the Alameda County Fair or something. It's a, <laughs> a really sort of silly approach to to great literature, but. And, you know, it's sort of like reading the Bible, you know, nobody actually reads the Bible, but if you can look at every word in the Bible, then you can wear the T-shirt saying, I read the whole Bible cover to cover or something, you know. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, um, so maybe this is a good juncture to, to help folks um, to look at your current project. And, you know, it's, it, it, 
deserves a little bit of explanation before we just, you know, it's a little bit translating his book. Yeah. <laughs> so, so maybe we could, maybe we could sort of say this is, um, uh, Walter Kilpie wrote a novel that he didn't finish Gulliver's voyage to Phantomimia. Mm -hmm. And he used a found manuscript, uh, theme perhaps or conceit yeah. that he yeah. had found uh the original ma english manuscript from uh of of the person or the character lemuel gulliver of yeah. gulliver supposedly Swiss. wrote the manuscript yeah yep and so it wasn't finished it had never appeared in an english translation so right. douglas robinson comes around and does what <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's kind of a strange thing from a Finnish point of view because nobody knows this book. It was published posthumously in 1944, unfinished, by his literary executor, and nobody noticed it. It was republished in 1993 in a, in a new edition, but again, nobody knows it. Right? If anybody knows anything about Kilipi, it's the the so-called Archipelago series, Alastalo, and then the, the two books that followed it. Um, and this this final book of his, left unfinished at his death, um, was something that he didn't really believe in himself. He um, he thought his work was done, and and um, and then he got this idea. He was reading the Swedish translation of Edgar Allan Poe's Descent into the Maelstrom, and he got this idea of using that that idea, that image of descending into the of, of the the, the polar vortex um, as a time travel machine. And so he started writing the book and he was sort of surprised because it came really easily. He said, you know, that his, his great works uh, of the, the thirties, especially the archipelago series, um, he wrote with his whole being and this novel he was writing just with his brain. And so it, it came very fast, but he didn't really have that much invested in it. So when he had a stroke, he really could have continued, but it was it was tiring, and so he just sort of gave up. And and so this book has never really been taken seriously. So what am I doing with it? This is <laughs> a, a, a weird thing, you know. And for me, it was the found manuscript idea because he claimed he found it in English and translated it into Finnish. So he is the author pretending to be a translator, like Cervantes, like Rabelais in Gargantua and Pantagruel, like many authors who have used the found manuscript tradition or created the found manuscript tradition uh, to pretend this is a real story about you mm. know, that actually happened, but doing it in a foreign language, right? pretending that it is a translation. So that, that was the attraction for me. And I realized that I could translate it and pretend to be the editor. I could pretend to find the manuscript in a rare book library at Yale uh, and, uh, and translate it and, and, and edit it, right? I would actually be translating it, but I would edit it. And then I could also finish the novel, and that would be still part of the editing job. Um, and and, so, and you also you you also have you take yeah. on the the persona of a critic of your project right. as as well 
Right. Right. <laughs> once I once I got excited about this sort of continuing his epistemological play, you know, this is a real story. This this actually happened, and there's a, there's a real manuscript that that we're just working with. He's translating. I'm editing. Once I got into that whole mindset, I began to uh, to channel Nabokov's uh, Pale Fire. Right, Charles Kinboat. I mean, the the editor persona that you take on is just so Kinboatian, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's, it, it's totally Kinboatian. <laughs> yes, one of my it, it is my favorite novel of all time, and I, I think I, I told somebody that I did. I didn't even realize I was doing it. It's it's so deep inside me that it just sort of started coming out. I came, started coming up with all kinds of fun things to do with with uh, with the book, and you know, I wanted to turn it into a, a a critical edition. I was going to write three or four other critical re- reviews of it, and each one arguing with the others. And I would I would be the editor footnoting them and arguing with the, the authors and so on. And it turned out that that was going to be too long, and so I cut it back a little bit. And But then I told this, this um, origin story of finding the book in, um, uh, in the Yale. The library, the right? Yeah. And, and you know, the, turning myself into this paranoid, mentally disturbed character that is, is you know dealing with uh, Ezra Pound who's married to a Venusian and so on. <laughs> yeah that that part kind of really threw me off at first but it it, it kind of makes sense in context yeah um, yeah well i just had so much fun doing it you know and it's palpable uh, dog it's pa- the fun is on the pages uh, you had fun and it's it's i had fun reading it's i had so much fun uh, though I, I must admit you you explained it beautifully i was trying to explain this to my wife this earlier today and she uh-huh. got completely confused <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 it's a complicated structure you know and it's, try it's, to explain pale fire you know pale fire is actually i don't understand pale fire Right. I've read critical. Well, and start breaking it down. Like, you know, there's two personas. There's John Shea. There's Charles Kinboat. Well, you know, obviously, Nabokov is playing a lot of games here. Brian Boyd says Hazel Shade actually wrote the book. <laughs> That's right. From the afterlife. <laughs> <laughs> so the games don't really stop. The games, it's no, it's kind of this, this funhouse mirror where you, every, yeah. whichever way you turn, yeah. there's different shapes. And, and can we talk a little bit about the Vorticist manifesto that just yeah. kind of gets stuck in here? And it makes sense, but it's just so bizarre, Doug. Horrible. And I love the bizarre. This, this, this is kind of bizarre that I love. Yeah. Yeah. The, as I began to, you know, to, to work on this um, and to um, imagine how I might have stumbled on the manuscript, I thought, wait a second. Wasn't there, wasn't there a, a literary movement called Vorticism? Wasn't wasn't their idea that the, the vortex is somehow important for for literature? And so I went and read up on it and realized that you know I read the Vorticist Manifesto and it's all about the vortex. That's right. So I thought, what if what if they stumbled upon this manuscript before Kielpi? Kielpi found it in 1938. What if they found it in 1914 and they read it and they and it inspired them to write this Vorticist Manifesto? And so I went through my translation, found all kinds of passages that really worked perfectly with the Vorticist Manifesto, <laughs> included anonymous notes toward the Vorticist Manifesto, where the whole idea is that, that 
this manuscript in English, which, of course, did not exist until two or three years ago. Right. Uh, <laughs> inspired the vortices, you know, the Ezra Pound and William Lewis and all those exactly. guys. <laughs> and so, you know, I, the, um, the, the, the half-crazy, paranoid Douglas Robinson um, goes in search of the author of that manifesto. And while he's at the, um, the Yale, the Beinecke Library at Yale, he finds, in looking at, at the Pound manuscripts, he finds the... Um, the uh, right, you, you decided Gulliver. not to have Wyndham Lewis uh, write the, the Vortices Manifesto, but the, but but Pound, right? That was well, a conscious no, decision. Uh, I say that I, I never did solve that. <laughs> okay, that's right. <laughs> it was just I, I was looking through the, uh, the 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 Pound papers when when this was was there, and then the idea is that the the son of the skipper in the novel. Skipper is named Cartwright, and his 15-year-old son is Ethel Cartwright. He's the one that solves the problem of getting them back to 1738. He buy, he steals an airplane, and they fly back around the polar vortex in the opposite direction and so on. Um, that he is a time traveler, that he continues to travel in time. He goes mm -hmm. to Venus and marries a Venetian princess. So, Wait, there's I, a sequel? A sequel? There's a sequel? Um <laughs> Actually, yes. Yes, I'm loving it, Doug. It's awesome because I I just got into I just got into it and I wanted more. I wanted more Venusians. I wanted more craziness. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I I have a a novel manuscript that I'm hoping to place at some point. I don't know where who's going to publish it, but <laughs> well, okay, publishers, pay attention because this is good stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we we do move we do move quite a bit from you know from the the holes at the poles kind of. Uh, a narrative, which, by the way, I, um, as a reader, because we try to focus, you know, Rob and I just try to focus on the actual um, uh, process of reading, the sort of the phenomenology, phenom phenomenology of it, you know, the, the feeling yeah. of reading. And I was, I, was yeah. I love that, that sort of that uh, Poe-like um, uh, movement of the narrative right at the beginning as, as, first of all, that strange kind of editorial uh, framework you know, with the paranoid international thriller kind of flavor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you get into Kilpie's work uh, and it becomes just this breathless one thing happens after another and you have no way to rest or, or just take it easy for a little bit on the, in the, in the text, just everything just keeps happening as they go yeah. into this vortex. And I, again, the thing with the, with the, with the vortices manifesto, it's all about space, you know, the vortex, the lines, the, the yeah. whole aesthetic manifesto was about, you know, fuck time, forget about time. Joyce sucks. Proust sucks. They all deal with the past. This is yeah. the present with the, the new, the machine age. We need yeah. shapes, we need form, we need geometry. Forget about time. But here they are. They're going through this time loop, this time vortex. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Into this weird yeah. vortices, you know, physical space. And you have no... It, it's, it's breathless, you know, you just keep going and you like, what's happening? What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? What's Because <laughs> it's just, it, everything seems to come out of the left field. And I love the disorientation it, it gives the reader because, you know, it, I mean, obviously, you know, there's no reality for it. But if you got, if you were going to go through a time vortex, you would be really disoriented. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. You, you you have no bearings. No bearings, and the and the and the prose gives you that. You know, yes. it's not just the idea of no bearings. It's it's literally like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah, Kirby, uh, as you. He was writing this. He wrote about 500 manuscript pages, and as he was writing it, he he read it to family and friends, and they all said this is the 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 first 
accessible thing you've written in in decades. <laughs> um, and it's exciting. It's suspenseful. It, it really grabs is. you. Sweeps, yes. sweeps you along. And he felt he felt uneasy about that, you know, because in the Alastalo Parlor, his great 900-page novel does not has no suspense. Arguably, it has no plot. The plot structure is. 20 men gathered in a parlor to sign uh, a contract to invest in a, in a large sailing ship. And one ship. of them is a sexual predator. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah sort of <laughs> on the I'm side. Kidding, I'm kidding. I got you. I got you. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and, you know, so, so everything is, is expanded, protracted. Time is, is protracted. There's, there's no rush to do anything in the book. Mm. And then, you know, it, the, just as he is moving toward death, he creates this this suspenseful popular novel, and he doesn't he he can't really appreciate it. It's it comes too easily for him, and then he has the the stroke that debilitates him. He gives up on it, and the book falls into complete obscurity. And you know, while I was working on it. I had the idea that my transcreation would also fall into obscurity because that's what happened to my translation of Kivi's Brothers Seven, which everybody in Finland recognizes as the greatest book ever, right? And and uh, that it's gone the other way. There's been a, a lot of interest in this, this transcreation. And the reason obviously is that it works better in English than in Finnish, or it uh, what it offers to the English reader is maybe more than what Kilpi offered the Finnish reader. And so, you know, it is, it is a, a whole different reader readerly experience than the, the Kiwi novel. Doug, is there going to be a translation into Finnish? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> I, uh, I really hope someone comes along and does that. That would be fantastic. That would be fantastic, <laughs> and, and and they could create a uh, an editorial person. Another framework, yeah, yes, yes. Robinson, who would argue with the character Douglas Robinson? That, oh, I love <laughs> it! I absolutely love it. Now, is it true that Kilpie's grandson didn't want the translation? Yeah. yeah. Why, why do you yeah. think that is? Is it just because? Uh, well, because um, I'm not just translating. Oh, I see. I see. Right. And, right. And, you know, actually, uh, there, I have a question that I think yeah. kind of gets to that. And we, we do have quite a few translators who listen. And and one of the things that occurred to me and Roman and I were chatting a little bit um, the other day is, and, you know, we talked about Nabokov. And one thing that occurred to me is um, when it comes to, say, Eugene Onegin, there had been, um, you know, English translations for, for some time. But the feeling was there was something special about um, that book in Russian, that it really couldn't be done well, which is, you know, obviously not a, a new complaint. But then yeah. Nabokov agreed and came, uh, came around, and he decided the only way to, to honor uh, Eugene Onegin was to do a, a, a non-fanciful, almost literal translation. And, and so his translation stands in, in contrast to the others, and I think the debate rages uh, within the tiny Russian academic community, but it made me think about your project. And, it, and one question occurred to me was, since there had never been a, a kind of um, strict translation of this unfinished manuscript, it's really interesting that the first experience in English is your 
creative work, really, yeah. this, this transcreation. Yeah. And, you know, part of me, if I'm the editor at, you know, Feeling Bookish uh, Publishing House and, and you approached me, I might be like, you know, Douglas, let's, you know, what if we just start with a by the book translation, establish the awareness, and then there could be, you know, the 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 part two, so to speak. I'm I'm just curious the conversations you had, uh, your your thoughts as you were, you know, mulling this around. Yeah, I uh, I, I had very little luck publishing it for for a long time because it was so so weird. It drew so much attention to the the translation process. Um, it, it, it put me sort of center stage. And even though I was sort of denying my center <laughs> stageness, um, and, um, uh, a more conservative approach to publishing this and promoting this would obviously have been to do a boring straight translation first yep. uh, and, and let people debate it for two or three decades and, and then come <laughs> up the, the weird, uh, translation. The, the difference between this and, and um, Onyegin is that uh, Onyegin in Russian is just unbelievable. It's so brilliant. Beautiful. Right here. Yeah. Pushkin has this, this incredible ability to write iambic pentameter as if Shakespeare had never existed. To write it in Russian as if he as if he were the inventor of iambic pentameter, mm. and yet sound like he's just sort of talking. Right. Right. Pushkin Pushkin had this this incredible ability to write poetry, uh, which is letter perfect, form perfect, everything works exactly the way it's supposed to in poetry, and it's funny and it's it it's self critical, self-undermining, self-reflexive, and so on. Um, Psychologically penetrating. I mean, you can go on and on. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I have always hated Onyegin adaptations because they tell this stupid so-called love story between Tatiana and Onyegin. It's, it, that's the, 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 the most boring part of the book. The interesting part is Pushkin himself as the narrator. Mm. Pushkin creates himself as a postmodern narrator who's constantly undermining his own authority. And Nabokov, to my mind, did the most boring thing imaginable. His translation is just incredibly stupid. It is the worst kind of literal translation. It's like, if you're, if you're Vladimir Nabokov, surely you can do better than this. Surely you can do a pale fire transcreation of Onyegin. I, in fact, there, there's uh, an idea. Yes. Oh, my God. You just blew my mind, Doug. You just blew exactly. my mind. Wow. Well, I wrote um, uh, a stage adaptation of Onyegin hmm. with Pushkin as the narrator on stage with his desk. He's wow. writing the play and narrating. Uh, and um, in the end, um, when uh, Onyegin shoots Lensky in the duel, uh, Dantes also shoots Onyegin. And the final scene is uh, the characters don't know what to do because the, the narrator, who's also oh, the narrator. author of the story, yeah, is dead. It makes the postmodern there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of doing what I think Nabokov should have done, except he would have done it so much better. And go figure, 
nobody wants to perform pr produce this play. It's it, it's a great play. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun. You know, I think I think Nabokov's translation has a place, but it's very scholarly. It's very dry. If you want to yeah. pick up some interesting points about the cultural specific points, uh, you yeah. know, time specific things that were true at the time, not true now or different now, then yes, I mean, you go there, you go to Nabokov's translation, you study it as it's as a scholar. Stuff. But as an artwork, it's it's crap. It's just not doesn't flow. Yeah. There's nothing there, really. Yeah. Well, and the, the the commentary volume is extraordinarily useful, and I used that when I was you yes. know, writing the play. That's the only I had, one I used. <laughs> That's I the only the volume I use. <laughs> I had the Russian original open, and yeah. I had his commentary open. That was it. That's it. That's me. That's that's what I do too. Yeah. That's all. It's all I needed really to to, to write this, uh, and because you know the. There are so many interesting ways of doing radical literal translations, and this was not one of them. Mm. Uh, in fact, Nabokov didn't like it. He said that it wasn't ugly enough. And I agree, you know, that he should have made it a lot uglier. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, in a way, that whole history of me loving Nabokov's novels and loving, especially loving Pale Fire, and then using his... Anyegin, his two-volume Anyegin, um, the using the commentary and despising the translation, fed into this Kilpi project, um, so that you know I I was sort of doing with Kilpi what I think Nabokov should have done with Anyegin. And, and speaking of the narrator uh, being sort of part of the the action, you put yourself uh, at one point uh, into the book as as God. <laughs> Yeah, I believe. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I love this. This uh, yet another parallel with with Pale Fire is that um, you know you have this um, uh, uh, Gulliver at one point or maybe several points he wonders if perhaps the creator is just messing with him and yeah. and 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 is, is kind of having this artfully manipulated world for their own aesthetic appreciation. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, you know Gulliver is suffering all these coincidences and crazy parallels and. Yeah, uh, you know, and so in this, one of the editor's notes, I said, "This is not metafiction, and I'm not writing it." Yes, yeah, yes, yes, liar! <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, there's yeah. so many. There's so many. It's like it's like you're hopping and skipping through the text uh, as as yeah. with yeah. various, you know, wearing various hats, and it the, the this saying, gotcha. fun. It's just great. I I love it. And let me just. I really want to mention this one word that I think has been. Selkuth. It's a new word for me. Selkuth. S E L C O U T H. It appears something like twenty-seven times. Thank God I have an e, e version of the book. Wow. Okay. Twenty-seven <laughs> times. It it's it, it's it's a rare word that actually means rare. It combines sort of strangeness, the sense of strangeness and wonder, right. uh, being amazed at something that's you're, you're confronting something new and unusual. And yeah. so this whole book is Selkuth. And let me. There's a quote here with. Um, Gulliver, when they get into Fantamimia, they get into this hotel, and I want to get into this whole modernism thing that uh, that Volta Kilpi bitches about a lot here. Um, but there's a sentence here that I just love. It it, it replies both to the book, to, to you, to everything you were talking about. Here's the sentence. I have found myself in circumstances and encountered people who have staggered my sensibilities and the silkuthery of their outlandishness. So, <laughs> <laughs> Doc, you definitely have the silkuthery uh, of Atlantishness in this book. I mean, just yeah, it's it's right. perfect perfect way of, it, of phrasing it. As as I also said somewhere there, uh, it is a silkuth 
Selma Gundy of sentiment. I love that one too. Yes, that's that. There was a dish or something, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Dish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you got you got like uh, you got things like uh, uh, was it the Thousand Plateaus, the 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 D and G yeah. the book, the line, lines of flight, yeah, lines of flight. All these little all these little phrases that you pick up on as the as the editor, as this crazy paranoid editor. And use like, well, this doesn't seem to really work in 1738 uh, or or 1938 for that matter. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, and one at one point, I changed Kilpi's. Um, no, I, I I mistranslated. Um, <clears throat> he had um, burlap on purpose. On purpose, yes. Right. Uh, he had burlap, and I changed it to ermine because I wanted to use that passage in the anonymous notes for the Vortices Manifesto. <clears throat> and rather than sort of admitting it there, I I had my vicious critic, the 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 one I invented that that attacked me as stealing and and distorting and destroying Kilpi and so on. I had him point out that this was. Uh, a mistranslation that I was I was mistranslating and then trying to blame Kilpi for mistranslating. <laughs> you had uh, another game you're playing there. Jeez. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I just, absolutely. It's just one of those books that I I, I can't get a, enough of because it's just so every every angle you look at it is a little bit different. Uh, but you know, I again I I think that if you tried to do something like this transcreation with a more established text, that would have been something different. But this this text is is mostly surface. I mean, he didn't put that much, you know, he didn't wasn't writing great literature uh, by his own account up a deal. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I think I think I think your freedom to do whatever the heck you want with this text is is well founded. Uh, I don't think you're taking anything away from it. You're adding so much, uh, especially for modern readers. You know, there's a lot of interesting. Postmodern stuff going on that's just yeah. not the this, this stuff. And then you have that weird when 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 you're done with Kilpie's translation, when he has the stroke and stops and you continue the book, it it very much becomes different, right? I mean, there's there's a break yeah. there. Uh, right. The the style is a little bit different. Um, the language is different. We have a um, you you note that Kilpie himself didn't have a, a satirical bone in his body. So right. there's not much satire going on in his section, but in your section, you know, your straight section, so to speak, the one to finish the book, there's a lot of satire. We have King Dick the Stiff. It's a Trump-like yeah. uh, figure. Yeah. Uh, he lives right. in Dick Tower. Uh, he's a conspiracy theorist. He hates the Venusians, the pink Venusians, who are like, you know, the pink, the pinkos, the, 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 the commies, you know, the Democrats or whatever you want to call yeah. them. Uh, he, he's, um, he's got small hands. Um, yeah. It just becomes really something quite different. And there's Venusians. And I was thinking bright pink light was reminding me of Philip K. Dick, which was reminding me of Ubik, which was reminding me that this is this type, this type of a book that plays all these oh. kind of games. Oh, my uh, God. I read Ubik just before writing this. I how? can't. It didn't even occur to me that I was drawing. Yes, on the that. pink light, man. That's the thing that makes him go crazy. <laughs> oh my god, it's perfect, right? See, there's yeah. there's these 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 things in this book that there's there's depth here that if you keep reading and the the the, the vortices connect. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Folks, you heard it first here on the Feeling Bookish <laughs> podcast. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Once we go past the Venusians, there's uh, uh there's. They're, they steal the airplane, right? They they try to get back. 
um, they throw the, the 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 Bible into the the water or something like that to make you know, to stabilize them, but and then end up in the Bible as characters yeah. in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, what in the, one of what, the really disturbing genocidal passages in the yes, Old Testament. Jericho. Which, which uh, I, I picture because I was there as a kid. I, I spent seven years living in, in Jerusalem as a kid. And Did I remember, really? yes, I remember visiting Jericho and, and being amazed at all the ruins and thinking, wow, is this where, you know, this crazy stuff went on? And I was just exactly picturing my, my vision of it or my, my memory of it as I was reading about it. But it is, it, there's a genocide in this book. Uh, yeah. It's pretty, pretty ugly. Um but and then it turns out that that all the people who were killed in that story uh, ended up on Mount Ararat and walked down right. the, the and, and became Armenian. <laughs> it's just wow. I mean, your imagination. I don't know. I, I, what were you smoking, Doug? And please, can I have some? Please. This is just I was really high on life. <laughs> no, really, really, it was it was just uh, you know giving myself over to um, my love of that outlandishness that you were talking about. You know the 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 weird things in the book of does that other writers do i just I... well let's, let's let's talk about that a little bit because you know we just mentioned uh, philip k dick but you really you go you go way back to you know the, like pynchon uh, mason yeah. and dixon with the whole language thing yeah. um there's uh guys goat boy there's sockweed factor that you really studied uh right. at, at some yeah. point in your life and, and i yeah, think it shows the influence definitely shows here yeah, that that uh, that kind of postmodernism. I remember mm -hmm. when I was writing about it in the mid to late '70s, uh, I really cared about you know what is true postmodernism, and I hated the the idea that say uh, Alain Robbiergrier, the the God, yeah. Yeah. was you know was postmodernism because there are no people in it. No, it's so boring. I can't I can't yeah. read the guy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> But um, but you know Barth and Pynchon and Coover and and Gast and people like that are are just doing all kinds of outlandish, weird, um, but also exciting and exciting. and and emotionally uh, pleasing things. And that's what I loved, and and that sort of pours into this. Well, we're just talking to Stephen Moore, the critic Stephen Moore, who was, you know, instrumental during the 70s of getting, you know, people like William Gaddis uh, noticed and stuff like that. And he, you know, he mentioned that uh, the 70s was really that sort of the decade for the, the maximalist postmodern novel. Um, ah, yeah, yeah. So, well, the 60s, really, yeah. Sure, yeah. sure. But I'm saying you know, that those are the culmination where, 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 where it was okay to write these kinds of books and people were actually reading them. Yeah, you know, yeah, it wasn't yeah. just some sort of a uh, weird uh, experimental writing that only a few people read, you know? True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I suppose that there must be some sort of nostalgia for that in me. I mean, I still have the books and I still love reading them. But, you know, for that for that kind of um, atmosphere. Doug, may, can I recommend a recent novel that is very much in that in that vein that I think you would really, really enjoy reading? Yeah. It's novel called Novel Explosives. Novel. By Jim Gower, G A U E R. Uh, check it out. It's it's. I think it will it will please your seventies uh, mega novel sensibilities. Um, okay. What I what, think what you'll really enjoy that. Uh, Jim Jim J I M Gower G A U E R. Okay. Novel okay. explosives. Uh, uh, Stephen Moore speaks highly of it. There's a new edition. Uh, I read it a couple of years ago when it first came out, and it it just blew my mind. It's just like, 
it's just like reading a pension novel, except it's not. It's just it's got oh. that complexity and cool. that interest and uh, uh, yeah, just even, just recommending even it because Moore. I think you really enjoy that. Um, I I associate the name Stephen Moore. Maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but with with um, weird, funny, inventive takes on the Bible, like uh, <laughs> rain in hell. Uh, is that is that the same guy? No, Stephen Moore believes an atheist. <laughs> so I don't think so. He yeah, he's a he's a he's a literary critic. The one I'm talking about, Stephen Moore, who oh. uh, who was with Dalky Archive for a while. Is, uh, oh. he, you know, he was uh, he he helped uh, edit uh, Infinite Jest, for instance. Uh, oh, did he really? Okay. Yeah, and he wrote he wrote the history of the novel uh, in right. two volumes. Yep. Oh. Where, by the way, he 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 basically tries to free the novel from the whole realist prison that it's been put into, and his point is that the novel has been experimental right from the get go. Oh yeah, and Barth said the same thing back in the in the seventies. I think you guys are kindred spirits over there for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, okay, excellent. Yeah, the the uh, yeah, Barth said the novel has always been dying. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So so shut up already about it. Yeah. <laughs> Just exactly. keep writing them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, you know the whole idea of the novel as uh, based on epistemological play, you know, playing with the notion that this actually happened. This is this the origin of the found narrative approach to to mm. novel. You know, you 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 no, you don't just pretend that this all actually happened. You also undermine that pretense. Right, right. It's and the double movement. Fun, right? Mm. That's Rabelais. That's Cervantes. That's Swift. You know, and and so you know, working with a Gulliver story, and and you know, being and loving Swift, and loving Stern, and you know, all all those those guys that are inventing the novel and constantly reinventing it and taking it apart at the seams and kicking it around the room and mm. having all kinds of fun while doing it. That that really was the inspiration for this. Well, yeah, another, another word, sorry, Rob, just quickly. Another word that, that besides Selkuth that jumped out at me is, is hoaxical. Use hoaxical and hoaxically as an adjective a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Rob. Sorry. No, I was just going to add it's interesting uh, that you mentioned Rabelais because um, I've been kind of catching up with um, the novelist Alexander Theroux, and yeah. he um, he really advocates playfulness uh, at you know at the level of language and he uh, really looks to Rabelais as somebody who um, you know is is uh, fun and in body and playful and and um, has kind of been left out of the anglo-american defrocked priest I believe it was he was he a priest uh, uh, Theroux not was a Trappist not, not uh, monk not the Theroux. No, okay. Theroux Rabelais oh Rabelais oh that I don't know he was a physician <laughs> A physician. Is that who so was a different? priest? There was somebody who was a priest. There was also. Oh, maybe I got something wrong. I don't remember, but mm -hmm. but uh, you know, um, Rabelais does survive in English in um, um, Thomas Urquhart's famous 1653 translation, where he improved on Rabelais. You know, where, where Rabelais had had uh, you know 36 adjectives for gar gargantua's penis <laughs> as a baby. Uh, Urquhart had 57 or something, you know, so wow. he's, he, he's adding That's an to improvement. It. That's growth, <laughs> might, one might say. Yeah, it's a transcreative uh, Make your penis larger. And then, <laughs> and then Urquhart's translation was very uh, influential for Stern writing Tristram Shandy. Mm. So it, I, I track that history in a, a book of mine called Translationality. 
Uh, I wanted to talk about that too, Doug, because you're you are seem to you. I mean, you're a translation expert. You've written textbooks on this stuff. This is your life. Right? You 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 spent yeah. your life kind of immersed in translation. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this background and what maybe what's kind of your takeaway from all these years? I, I know it's kind of a lot to ask for. Just to I I uh, defended my PhD dissertation on American literature in 1983 and um, and got it accepted for publication. And then I thought, what should I work on next? I, I wonder if anybody has published anything on translation because I'd been translating for about 10 years by then. Mm from Finnish to English. And I was back in Finland. I, I got my PhD in the US and went back to Finland and I walked into the university library thinking, eh, maybe there's something here that I could, I could, um, you know, get my teeth into. And I found George Steiner's After Babel. And I read it and I was thrilled by it. And that sort of transformed my focus on American literature into a focus on translation. But I've sort of gone back and forth between them throughout my career. I've published maybe 15 or 16 books on translation and only maybe three or four on American literature. So, you know, it has sort of skewed mm. translation, but I've continued to translate also. And for the last 10 or 12 years, I've been hired to translate exclusively literary texts. Um, and and uh, that's been very nice. But so far I haven't been hired to translate anything really exciting that really gets my my uh, juices flowing uh, and so i've done those things on spec so i did the kiwi on spec and mm. had a hard time publishing it and then um then the um the kilipi on spec i i know that you're uh you're uh, a translating and interpreting professor um at the chinese university of hong kong what what are you finding with your students um what are they looking to do what what are their instincts with translating today well uh in the the, the mainland chinese um and generally sort of greater chinese translation marketplace has not yet been devastated by free online machine translation mm. uh, in the west uh the uh, google translate is is so good that that you can hire you can first translate your text through it for free and then hire a post editor to try to to edit it into decent English prose yeah. um, for a fraction of the price that you you pay a, a translator. It's much faster. It's much easier. It's much cheaper. And so it has wiped out maybe one third. Some would people say one half of the the bottom of the translation marketplace. All the mediocre translators are out of work. They're, they're all doing post editing or flipping burgers or whatever <laughs> um, made in china that hasn't happened yet and so my students are still very hopeful about having a, a a decent career as as translators we'll see how that goes uh, most likely it will happen in china also but so far the fact that chinese is um uh has no word divisions right you it's, it's difficult to know for, for a non-Chinese person, what's a word and what's not, right? Because it's just a string of, of characters. Mm -hmm. And that makes things difficult for machine translation. And, and so translation, machine translation between English and Chinese is still uh, quite weak. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think, I think in one of the, I think in, on your wiki page, which is quite impressive, by the way, um, I noticed that the, 
the Chinese reception of your translations is very positive because they they point out that you um, unlike maybe some translators you you balance sort of feeling and intellectualism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit? Because we, we kind of try to, again, try to focus on the, the whole emotional aspect of, of literature. Yeah. Um, so can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, obviously, um, loving literature is an affective approach. Right? And yes. A lot of people who love literature accuse literary critics and literary theorists of hating literature because they want to intellectualize it, right. turn it into abstract structure. And I've never... I never liked that. I never liked that approach to uh, literary criticism or literary. I love you, Doug. That's great. <laughs> I I love writing literary criticism and literary theory. Sure. But you know, in that the, that that sort of affective mode where everything critical is also saturated in in feeling, and um, and so beginning about the mid '80s, I began to to theorize um, the somatics of language, how language is always steeped in emotion, how emotion doesn't just channel meaning, but structures meaning, um, that, that without the somatic or emotional or affective uh, aspect of language, we would be completely helpless. Mm. People, people with severe Asperger's, so-called aprosodiacs, uh, have a very hard time understanding what other people mean. They have a hard time communicating in in society because they are not processing the emotion in right. in text or in what people say. And so, uh, beginning in my very first book on translation, the translator's turn in 1991, I theorized the somatics of translation, the importance of of feeling for for knowing what's right. And also playing off what's right. You feel your way into the rightness of a translation. And then you think, well, that's not quite it. Maybe I should tweak it a little bit this way. And no, that doesn't feel quite right and so on. In the West, however, that model was typically misread as saying that I was encouraging translators to feel and not to think. Mm -hmm. Because in the West, Thinking and feeling are thought of as polar Separate. opposites. Right, yeah. right. In China, they're not separated. The word for heart, xin, in Chinese, can be translated as both heart and mind. And and so in China, nobody has ever accused me of <laughs> encouraging translators to tr to feel rather than to think. They right. they understand my somatic approach instantly. And I think that has a lot to do with the. Um, my reception in China. What do you think of, of people like Rudd Pine, uh, Bill Porter, who's so popular in China? He's more popular in China than here, and he's an American. Uh, yeah. You know, doing these translations of of you know canonical Buddhist texts and poetry, uh, and yeah, he's yeah. A, a celebrity in China. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that he was a celebrity in China, but I do know that um, that those those sort of radical mystical interpretations of ancient Chinese texts, uh, they're, they're great. They're wonderful. Um, I disagree with them. I like R Rob, Roger Ames's work mm -hmm. better. Okay. Um, but but um, at least Red Pine and Bill Porter are translating these texts into something that is not just stale, static, scholarly right. structure. Right. Right. It's definitely alive. I mean, he sings some of his alive. stuff. Yeah. It's supposed exactly. to be sung. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And and 
Um, you know, the, the thing about Chinese scholarship generally is that it is extremely submissive. If some authority said something once 2000 years ago, that is the truth and you don't question it. And um, that's sort that's sort of a problem um, because, you know, my approach to those same texts is to let, let's let's think about this. Let's let's build connections. Let's build bridges. Let's uh, let, let's recognize the the affinities this has with that and so on. And and so there's some kind of uh, uneasiness around this when I when I talk or when I write about ancient Chinese texts. Uh, and. Um, and yet, um, what I find is that Chinese audiences, readers, and and listeners tend to, first of all, they're happy that some Westerner is is taking their ancient work so seriously, but also um, finding exciting, useful applications that they can then employ in their own work. Um, and it, it always seems to me that it's strange that more people don't do this. More Chinese people don't go back to the Taoist and Confucian classics and, and and say, what a treasure trove of ideas and models and methods and things for for contemporary work. Absolutely. Because that's what I'm doing. And you know, they sort of feel uneasy about it, but also, you know, get excited about the possibilities. And 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 the, when I talk to my Chinese colleagues, you know, why does isn't it doesn't this happen more often? They say, well, you know, we are sort of uh, enthralled. To the authorities it's mm. difficult for us to get past that well it's confucius's fault <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 because yeah, that that was what he, he wanted to do was to install that kind of and yeah and look the the influence is still pervasive and it's still that yeah. kind of society for the most part that's yeah. not necessarily a bad thing it's just i'm personally obviously coming from the west and everything but i'm also as rob will tell you i from an early age, I considered myself a Taoist and, oh. and less of a Lao Tzu Taoist than a Zhuangzi Taoist because uh, I love the word. Yeah, I love the wordplay of the Zhuangzi. You know, I love the the philosophical musings, the 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 slipperiness of him as a philosopher, um, and it's just the fun. Again, the fun is very important to me, as you can yeah, tell. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, well, so always... I wish they would like take, take up more more from Zhuangzi than than from Confucius. Uh, yeah, Zhuangzi is is very much in the the, the postmodern mode. Is um, mm -hmm. yes. Um, but do you read the Chinese or do you read them in translation? No, I have to read them in translation. I I thought about I I took a Chinese course at UMass Amherst when I was an undergraduate, and I took a, a course in Chinese uh, in calligraphy. Believe it or not, I started doing calligraphy yeah, okay. and, and a course in Chinese poetry and then you know the Tang and the ancient Chinese poetry. Yeah. Uh, but I uh, and my friend, uh, I have a friend actually, Rob, you, you know, Jeremy, if you remember Jeremy, who went to Taiwan at the time, really got to know the language. And, and we had a lot of fun sort of going to Chinatown and ordering stuff from very confused waiters. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I never really pursued that. But it was always kind of um, something about Zhuangzi that drew me right from the get go. I feel some weird spiritual kingship with that kind of epistemological play and, and sense yeah, of yeah, fun. Right. I uh, I connected with Mengzi first, Mencius. Uh huh. Yeah. And uh, have a book on um, the the deep ecology of rhetoric in in Mencius and Aristotle. Um, and um, so I I, I I I haven't done much with Zhuangzi, but that is in my future. But I wanted to say that um, it's not surprising that you are 
interested in in China because even though St. Petersburg was supposed to be the um, the Europe the the window to Europe, Russia has never been quite European. Yes, yes. Yeah. Russia and, and, is, yeah. is Eurasian, and um, there are strong affinities, maybe through the Mongols, I don't know, but strong affinities with Asian thought. I have, I, I, I tell you, I, I think I have some, some uh, lineage going down to the Caucasus. That's where ah, some, okay. some of my people are. So it's right there on the, the, the intersection of, of East and West. So yeah, I, I yeah. feel, I feel that, I feel that little bit of like, you know, that weird kinship. You're right. It's, it's, um, it's right there in my geography, I guess, in my DNA. Yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, I was well, going to say too, though, that, that um, to read Tang and Song poetry, you really have to have Chinese. I know, I know, but I like reading, you know. Pushkin, reading Pushkin in English or any other translation, right? You, I, I remember reading Pushkin insane. before I did Russian, thinking, why do people think this is a great writer? This is crap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I started, you know, I learned Russian uh, and and memorized Yavas Lubil. Yavas Lubil. Ah, yeah, yes. And and uh, you know that that memorization has stood me a good stead in Russia because whenever I need to make a toast over vodka. <laughs> you know, I can I can just say there you go. Yavas Lubil. That's right. Shall <laughs> etc. Right. Um, and and um, you know, memorizing Pushkin made me realize this this guy is is phenomenal. Apps. Uh, I mean, really, he's and it's like it's like I think don't think people really. I mean, I think that you realize that there are great writers in other languages, but you don't really until you have this an actual genuine taste of it yeah. um you know like like i don't know you, you know about the vladimir Vysotsky, the the russian yeah. singer yeah, uh, yeah there's a there's an english language biography of him called hamlet with a guitar uh, uh -huh. to my mind I, I grew up listening to him because my my, my father was really into him and uh, mm -hmm. he would play him on the piano and sing his songs and stuff like wow. that um and, and so to my mind he is just as great if not greater than bob dylan it, uh -huh. You know, a lot of his uh, lyrics and stuff like that. Uh, yet he's just barely known. I mean, he tried to make it into Hollywood in the 70s and 80s, I believe, and failed. Um, but uh, as a Russian, I also grew up, you know, I only spent my first seven years in St. Petersburg and then we moved to a different country. Oh, okay. But uh, right. I, yeah, my first, my earliest memory, Doug, is of my mother uh, reciting Pushkin to me. And yeah. I still remember it was the it was the the preface to Ruslan Ludmila where the cat goes on that on that uh, around that oak tree on the golden mm -hmm. chain and if he goes to the right he sings a song and if he goes to the left he tells his tale, mm -hmm. uh, and it it th those words are to this day are like uh, some sort of a magical incantation yeah. to me, you know. We have we have Russian friends here in um, in Hong Kong, and their four year old son recited that oh. with his horrible. <laughs> horrible pronunciations right, uh, he, right. he, he, he mangles all the all the sounds um <clears throat> so i didn't understand any of it my but my wife who's russian said yeah everybody knows that <laughs> yeah everybody knows that <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness well i think we should probably call this uh call I mean, this has been so much fun i don't want us to end doug but uh yeah, yeah I, i'm enjoying it too this could go on forever and i've still got 68 percent battery in uh, listen, we need, we need to make sure to, that we mention this book again because that's what we we, we got here for. Uh, we're talking about uh, Doug Robinson's uh, transcreation, not just the translation. It's a translation uh, with a lot of extra stuff, so it becomes a transcreation. It's a delicious, delicious 
postmodern yet also not postmodern stew. <laughs> um, uh, it's called uh, Gulliver's. Um, I'm sorry. What is the call? What is the, the, the actual Voyage title? The Gulliver's Voyage to Phantom Mimia. Um, I, I urge folks to pick this book up because it's unusual. It's not like any other book you really going to be reading this year. Probably it plays a lot of interesting games. Uh, it's got uh, a, a, the center, the sweet center of uh, of a quote unquote a lost lost book by a a Finnish liter, literary giant. So you're going to get something uh, way more for your buck than your regular book. Um, and I, I, Doug, I only have the the e book. Um, oh, because I'm yeah. traveling, I can't really, I can't really take on a lot of physical books. But correct me if I'm wrong. Is this a beautiful book or what? Because I can see the cover is incredible, but physically, it feels to be. I think it's going to be a, a very good feeling book in your hands. I don't it know does, because I don't have. That books. does feel very nice. Yeah, this right. this publisher in in Romania, Bucharest, Romania, Zeta Books, um, does really wonderful work. Um, somebody else asked me, why did you publish in Romania and mm. The, the the easy answer is because nobody else wanted it. I went to all the obvious venues for for great published translated literature in in uh, England and the U.S. Nobody wanted it, and they were willing to do it. And I just I love the the work they do. They they also did my Kiwi, right, right, which also looks like a beautiful cover. I mean, the covers yeah. are are stunning. They're, it is they're so clear amazing. and yeah, yeah. And creative. Yeah. Um, very, I'm going to. I'm going to. I think I, that's that's my next book. Is the Kiwi book your translation of the Kiwi book? And tell us again. Are you working on the Alistair, uh translation? Right. I'm not re yet working on it. It's too much for me while I'm working full time. So I'm planning mm -hmm. to do it in, in retirement, in retirement, which is probably three or four years from now. Um, but I just finished a monograph called. Uh, I'm putting finishing touches on it, called "Translating the Monster Volter Kilpi." Uh, in orbit beyond untranslatability with un in, in parentheses. Um, and for that, I've translated a, a lot, the, the whole first chapter um, and and dozens of other paragraphs. In, in So I, it feels like that is my current project and that is what I'm doing with Kilby right now. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the Gulliver book is just out. Um, but yeah, the, I'm moving slowly toward translating Alastalo into English. Oh, that's that's just absolutely wonderful news. Uh, well, I'm loving it. That's great. Well, this well, has been this yep. has been really wonderful, and we thank you, Douglas, for being with us. And and we remind folks that we've been talking to Doug Robinson. He is the trans creator of Volter Kilpie's Gulliver's Voyage to. Phantomimia, and that is available on Zeta Books. You can go to zetabooks.com to order that. And you can also follow uh, Doug on Twitter, at Doug11ROB. And so thank you so much, uh, Doug. And uh, my name is Rob Fay. Thank you so much, Roman Sivkin. And thank you, uh, Doug. Really appreciate we, it. We tip our Thanks hat to Heston help. Hoffman, who is our producer. Thank you, Heston. And uh, it's been a great conversation. And uh, Thanks again, Doug. Uh, I, thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. It's been, it's been great fun. Thanks, Rob. Thanks. Bye, for guys. Bye, bye.